This uh, weekend, we've had about 75 or 80 fathers and their sons up north in the Sierras for a father-son fishing, camping outing, which happens every year about this time. A few of the guys have come back and the early reports are in. Once again this year, the fish are safe. So so that's good news. (laughs) So it's a great time. I don't know about the worm population. They may not have fared so well, but but it's a a great weekend for dads and their sons to get away and spend some time together doing guy things. So uh, really rejoice in that. I want to talk to you this morning about choosing sides. I want to talk to you about choosing sides. Most of us earn or learned early on about the need to choose sides. Guys, you probably will remember your first experience on the playground for some sort of a pickup ball game, whether it was throwing fingers or grabbing a ball bat and placing your hands, you know, and then the, the guy who caps it. That's, uh, that's part of our childhood memories, choosing sides out there on the, on the, ball, on the ball field or Maybe, gals, you remember your early experiences with dolls at home. Somebody has to be the boy doll, and so you have to choose sides. As we've grown, of course, we've become aware of the politics around us, and the political system requires us to make decisions and choose sides for the various elections that come and go. Is the various unpleasant task sometimes of having to arbitrate when uh, there's a disagreement between siblings or friends or even family members. Choosing sides. Many times it's really difficult to go through that process to, to figure out which is the right side to be on. Which side do we choose? The facts can often be murky or confusing. Neither side seems clearly in the right. In fact, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17 says that the first to plead his case seems just until another comes and examines him. That is, the first one to come and tell you what's going on seems to have the, all the facts on their side until you begin to poke a little further and figure that out. Moms and dads know that especially. It's hard sometimes to figure out just exactly what is the right side to be on. But with regard to the decision that is before us this morning, the the facts are not murky. The sides are not fuzzy. It is very clear. It is very sharp. And the end result of our decision could not be more different. It is indeed life and death. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 5 through 13. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's page 1132. Page 1132 will land you at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. Now, last week we introduced this section. And we did so by looking at three aspects of the conflict between the spirit and the flesh. This week, we're going to continue our study of that conflict. And we're going to look together at the final two aspects. The final two aspects of the conflict between the spirit and the flesh that we must understand and apply so that we end up on the winning side. Okay, very simple, very straightforward. Beginning in verse 5, Romans chapter 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh 
cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Last time we looked at three aspects of this conflict between spirit and flesh. And let me just review that for you momentarily here to get you up to speed. We noted last time in verse 5 that there is a contrast. There's a contrast between spirit and flesh. And we must understand that contrast. Paul talks about those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the Spirit. You see it there in verse 5. And we noted for you last time that that's a, that's a way of referencing two different kinds of people. People with two different orientations in life. Indeed, as the text unfolds, two different outcomes for their life. And we called them last time for shorthand in order to be able to keep track of them. We called them flesh people and spirit people. Those according to the flesh are flesh people. Those according to the spirit are spirit people. And Paul goes on to say, verse 5, you'll note that, that those who are flesh people set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who are spirit people set their minds on the things of the spirit. And we noted again last week that this, uh, this idea of setting the mind on is, is a translation of a verb here in the Greek that could, uh, from neo, it could be also translated to be of someone's mind or to be on someone's side. And so that's the way we are, we are looking at this section here, that there are two sides Those who are flesh people are on the side of the flesh. They set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those who are spirit people are on the side of the spirit. That is, they set their mind on the things of the spirit. And these two kinds of people, these two individuals, are in opposition to one another. And in fact, a person cannot be both a flesh person and a spirit person. They are one or the other. We noted that those who are flesh people are those that are living according to their sinful nature. That is, that they have their mind and their heart set upon the things that gratify that nature. That's what characterizes their life. That's what is the distinguishing mark of their life. Conversely, the spirit people's lives are distinguished and characterized by a pursuit of the things of the spirit. So, there is a contrast, verse 5. We must understand that contrast between the spirit and the flesh. Secondly, verse 6 we noted last time, that we must understand the consequences of each side of this contest. That is that the flesh people, verse 6, the outcome is death. Those whose mind is set on the flesh is death. And the outcome of the spirit person is life and peace. That is eternal life and peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It harkens us back to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ. So, there is the ultimate destiny of flesh people, spirit people, and they move in two different directions. One in death, that is eternal death, separated from God. One in life, that is eternal life in relationship with God. So, there is a consequence of being a flesh person or a spirit person. Third, verses 7 and 8 Again, this is all review from last time. Third, we must understand the condition of those who are in the flesh. Paul takes up the flesh person first and he speaks about their condition. Verses 7 and 8. And we noted that two, there are basically two characteristics of the condition of the flesh person. One is that they are hostile towards God. That is, they live in open defiance and hostility towards God. They are at war with God. 
hostile to God. And secondly, that is, they live in a world of inability. They are unable to please God. They are unable in and of themselves to do anything pleasing in God's sight. Anything meritorious, anything that would would attract his favor or attention. They are living in open and active opposition to their creator. They are dead in their trespasses and sins, the Bible would say over in Ephesians chapter 2. And that leads us to where we want to be in the text now this morning before us. Verses 9 through 11, we want to take up the condition of the spirit people. We must understand the condition of those who are in the spirit. Notice in verse 9, the dramatic contrast here. He says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's been describing this, the flesh person and its eventual outcome, death and hostility to God. And he's saying, however, on the other hand, you Roman Christians that I'm writing to, you are not flesh people. You are spirit people. You have an entirely different condition of your life. You are characterized in an entirely different way than flesh people. And so he's going to now speak of that. And it's going to be very dramatic. 180 degrees different from those who are the flesh people. He's going to begin... And I think it's appropriate for us to begin with an implied contrast here in verse 9. That is, since flesh people cannot please God, spirit people can and do. And I think we need to say that. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They are hostile to God. But those who are in the flesh are not hostile to God. They love God. They are in love with God. And they are able to please God. Their lives are moving in a direction in which God finds great satisfaction and joy. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant. That is something that a spirit person has every reason to look forward to hearing at the end of it all. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. So the condition of the spirit people is in direct opposition and direct contrast to the flesh people. And the reason that's true, verse 9, is because they are indwelt by the Spirit. Do you see it? You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. They are indwelt by the Spirit of God. That is that the the life-giving Spirit, as Paul speaks of the Spirit of life there in verse 2, has taken up a residence within them, dwells within them, makes his home permanently within them. That is, God himself now occupies a residency within the life of the spirit person. That is in direct contrast to the flesh person who is hostile to God. The spirit person is the temple of God. And we know that this drastic difference is not an external difference, but an internal difference. It's that idea of the Spirit dwelling within us. There is an external manifestation of that reality, but the fundamental reality between the flesh person and the spirit person is the internal, indwelling, permanent residence, abiding presence of God Himself in their life. Notice Paul says that If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Do you see that statement? That is a a statement in which Paul is very clearly laying out what it is that qualifies one as a spirit person. What it is that characterizes one as a spirit person. Those who have the indwelling Spirit belong to Christ. Those who don't, don't. It's as simple as that. Scripture could be no clearer with regard to what it is fundamentally that makes one a Christian, that makes one a follower of Jesus Christ, that makes one born again, than he is here by talking about the indwelling Spirit of Christ. That is what it is that characterizes us. 1 Corinthians 12.13, Paul says that, that we are all baptized into the body of Christ by one Spirit. That is, it is the distinguishing mark of the believer, the follower of God, the follower of Christ, has been indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. 
And He is our assurance. He is our assurance. 1 John 4.13 We know that, that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of our, His Spirit. It is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, which I guess I should say here is one and the same thing, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, theologically. And so it is the Spirit Himself, third person of the triune Godhead, His permanent home, His permanent residence within us that makes us truly sons of God, makes us truly spirit people. But notice here in verse 9 the, uh, the use of if. Do you see that? He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 10, he uses it again. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus dwells in you. And uh, verse 11, he does this, he does, says the same thing. Uh, so in both verses 9, 10 and 11, we see this, this idea of if is raised for us. The reason Paul does that here is not to, he's not trying to raise any uncertainty in your minds with regard to whether you are or you aren't indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. What he's doing is he's, he's setting the text up and he's setting us up for the conclusion, verses 12 and 13. He's going to be drawing us to this conclusion. He's going to describe the Spirit person and what it is that characterizes their life, the condition of their life. But he's going to continue to insert this idea of if, And he's doing that because he's going to come to the conclusion that there is a drastic difference here between flesh people and spirit people. And so I just kind of tip in my hand for the end here. If there's not a drastic difference, he will say in our lives. Then maybe we're really not spirit people. Maybe we're really not. So the use of the if here is to continue to set you up, to set me up, to set us up, to set his readers up. For his conclusion, that is, to examine ourselves. So Paul says, the spirit person is indwelt by the spirit, verse 9. Further, he is dying yet alive, verse 10. Dying yet alive. He says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Spirit people are going to die. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. This body is born to die. From the moment we enter into this life, the process of decay begins. For a period of time, the body renews itself and then the young infant begins to grow and to mature, but the, the, the internal processes of death are woven right into the fabric of who we are. We're going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. That principle is woven into you. Your body is going to die. It is decaying. It is breaking down. That is a reality. And and it's a reality that we need to face as spirit people. Just because we're spirit people, it doesn't mean we escape the consequences of sin. You would think that those who are flesh people, those that were hostile to God, those that were cannot please God, that those would be the ones that would die and that somehow we who are on the Lord's side would somehow escape the ravages of death. But it's not true. It's not true. Death stalks you just like it stalks me. I don't know how many funerals I've done, but it's been a number. And it is a continual process at work in the body of every single follower of Jesus Christ. The fact that we are spirit people doesn't allow us to escape this reality. In fact, Paul talks about mortal bodies. Do you see that, verse 11? Mortal bodies. We are dying, folks. And the sooner we realize the full implications of that, the better off we will be. You cannot escape it. You cannot get away from it. The curse of death lies within you And the reason it lies within you is because you are in the stream of humanity and you have received the inheritance of Adam. That was Paul's argument back in Romans chapter 5, that in him we all died. And so death is absolutely what we're facing. From dust we have come to dust we shall return. The good news is, Verse 10, that although the body is dying, 
The spirit is alive. The spirit is alive. The flesh people, their body is dying as well, but their spirit is dead too. They are heading for eternal destruction. But the spirit people, yea, our body is dying, but our spirit is alive. That is, that because of the indwelling work of the spirit of Christ, he has, it says, because of righteousness, he has applied the righteousness of Jesus Christ to my life. My spirit is alive. I am alive today. I have the life of God within me. I have been made alive. That's the good news. That's the good news in the face of the sober reality of death. You know, people do everything they can to avoid death. They'll, uh, they'll spend all kinds of money on uh, exercise equipment, which they'll never use. They'll, uh, they'll chase after various uh, potions and, and, uh, and herbal uh, vitamins and things they can take. Whatever they can do to fend off death. And sometimes it gets really weird. But the reality of the matter is that death stalks us. It cannot be evaded. It cannot be escaped. You are going to die. But the good news is, the good news is that the life of God resides in your soul. And though your body will die, your spirit is alive to God in Christ Jesus. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that in verse 11 because there is an assurance of resurrection that comes to the spirit person. It doesn't all end at the grave. Not only has our spirit been made alive in Christ Jesus, but eventually our physical bodies will be made alive as well. I can't think of any greater comfort standing graveside than that. To be able to to tell the weeping loved ones who are left behind when they have laid one they love so much in the ground to be able to say to them in the confidence of the Word of God that, that this person, because they have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they've been united to Him by faith, that they will rise again. That they will live again. And that you will see them again. That this is not all there is. Life doesn't end at the side of a hole in the ground. But our bodies are going to be raised from the dead. This is our hope. This is our assurance, verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him, He says, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Holy Spirit who indwells you. The assurance of life everlasting. Physical life in this body's life. And it's made a certainty because, look again, verse 11, Because the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, third person of the triune Godhead, has taken permanent residence in you. In you. He is your guarantee of a future resurrection. He is your certainty of sonship. Just as Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, so we who are called by His name will be raised likewise. He is the firstfruits, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. You know, folks, it's really a blessing that we die. It's a blessing that we die. Let me me try to unwrap that for you a little bit. Some of you are looking at me kind of mystified and saying, what are you talking about? It's a blessing that we die. The reason it's a blessing is because these bodies cannot be in the presence of Christ, cannot enter into the presence of a God who is thrice holy, before whom no sin can possibly exist, we could never enter into His presence in these bodies today. These bodies are corrupt. These bodies are damaged with sin. These bodies show the effect of sin upon them. They would never, ever be suitable to enter into the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. And so death really is a blessing for us. Because it is when death For those who are united with Christ that we have the certainty of resurrection in a glorified body suited and fitted to be in the presence of God Almighty. There's pain involved in death. There's tearing. There's separation for those who are left behind. But don't ever weep for the one who died. For the one who died in Christ Jesus is now soon to be raised from the dead 
in a glorified body by which they are, can enter into the presence of the throne room of God. Death is a blessing. Because without undergoing the dramatic change brought about by death and resurrection, neither you nor I could ever, ever enter into the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 and following. Paul speaks of that. That which is immortal or mortal cannot inherit immortality. It must die and rise again. So flesh people, flesh people hostile to God, unable to please God, destined for death and separation from God. However, you are not in the flesh. That is, if indeed you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. Instead, you're looking for a different destiny. That is, that your spirit is made alive. That you have the promise of resurrection, a new body to enter into the presence of God. And that brings us to the fifth aspect of this conflict and probably the most poignant part of the whole section. We have to understand the conclusion of this matter. Paul has given us some serious theology here. But he's given it to us for a purpose. You notice how it begins verse 12. He says, so then. You see that? So then. Based on what he said, something needs to be done. We need to walk away from this with, with some kind of action. This is where instruction turns to exhortation. The conflict here between the flesh and the spirit should produce something in us. Because of what God has done in us through Jesus Christ, there's an expectation of a certain kind of behavior for you and for me. We need to respond. There's an emphasis here on human responsibility. You see it? So then, brethren, we are under obligation. There's an obligation here. There's a responsibility here. Not a responsibility that can be accomplished in our own strength but a responsibility that can be accomplished because of the indwelling Spirit of Christ. So what is that obligation? What is the obligation? Verse 12, we're under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now Paul doesn't finish the thought here, but you can easily finish the thought for him. We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but we are under obligation to who? To the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit. Paul is saying we are under obligation. If what is true of us is what he has said is true, then therefore it works itself out in an obligation, and the obligation is to live according to the Spirit. So then, verse 12, summing up, Brethren, summing up the reality that is that you are alive in the Spirit and you will someday enjoy future physical resurrection in a glorified body suitable to stand in the presence of God, because of that, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. And your responsibility is simply this. Your responsibility is to live now as if you were already resurrected. Let me say that again. Your obligation, your responsibility is to live now as if you had already been resurrected. As if you are already in possession of that which has been assured to be yours. That is, that you are in possession of a body that is holy and suitable to enter into the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, you and I know we're not going to get there in this life. It's a journey. It's a struggle. It's a war. It's a conflict. And there are many slips and stumbles along the way. But there is this ongoing obligation to fight the fight, to live the life today as if tomorrow had already become reality. Because you see, in the mind of God, it is a reality. You have been raised with Jesus Christ. So begin living like it, the Apostle Paul would say. 
What a contradiction it is for a spirit person to live like they're a flesh person. It absolutely contradicts everything about them. How can we who have been delivered by the indwelling Spirit of God from the, from the rule of sin, from the power of sin, continue to yield our lives to it as if we still lived in the old age? Paul would say it's a contradiction. You can't do it. A struggle? Yes. Clearly, there's a struggle. Look again, verse 12. We're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. He's acknowledging there's a struggle here. He's not in any way saying that somehow you can evade and avoid the struggle, that you can somehow conquer it all and that you begin to live in some sort of way in which sin never affects you anymore. He's not saying that at all. He's acknowledging the struggle here, but he's telling you you've got to struggle. You've got to struggle. And not only you've got to struggle, there's a certain way you have to struggle. You need to struggle according to the Spirit. According to the indwelling Spirit. You know, it's not simply a matter of determination. It's not simply a matter of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Saying, this time I'm going to do it right. It's not that at all. Because the flesh cannot contain the flesh. You cannot muster up enough self-control within yourself in order to restrain yourself. Sin will burst through. The dam will not hold. It is only as we walk in the Spirit that we can fulfill this obligation. And that is, verse 13, the Spirit enables us. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are pointing to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is the Spirit's enablement that enables us to fulfill the obligation that's laid upon us here in verse 12. Flesh and spirit are in opposition to each other. They're antithetical to each other. The results of spirit people and flesh people are absolutely in contrast to each other. Therefore, when he says, look again, verse 13, that if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. He's saying that is indeed the invariable result of a flesh person. Not even God Himself can or will change that reality. Flesh people will die. Spirit people will live. I think in context here, the death and life spoken of, they have to be given their widest possible context. I think it's all the way to eternal life and eternal death. He's talking about the lake of fire and He's talking about the glorious bliss of living in the presence of God. He's talking, as it were, about Revelation 6 and Revelation 20. The lake of fire, the presence of God. And he's saying here, look again, verse 13, if you are living, that is, if this is what characterizes your life, if you are living according to the flesh, and we noted earlier, if you are a flesh person, that's what that means. If you are a flesh person, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the, of the body, you will live. Older commentators call this mortification. Mortification. That's a word that's not used very often in the church anymore. The mortification of sin. That's an old-fashioned word. But it comes from the, the verb here that Paul talks about where he says that you must have put to death the deeds of the body. Thanatao, it means to kill someone, to hand someone over to be killed. To execute would be another way to put it. And it speaks of the radical nature of our struggle with sin. In Galatians 5.24, Paul speaks of crucifying the flesh with its passions and its desires. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus calls it denying ourselves and taking up our cross. They're all very violent images. Because it's a very violent confrontation. Listen to this uh, quote from uh, John Stott, uh, a British pastor and Bible commentator for many years. He says, quote, Mortification is neither masochism, that is taking pleasure in self-inflicted pain, nor is it asceticism, 
resent, uh, resenting and rejecting the fact that we have bodies and natural bodily appetites. It is rather a clear-sighted recognition of evil as evil, leading to such a decisive and radical repudiation of it that no imagery can do justice except putting it to death. He's saying that when that the mortification of sin, when Paul says here that you are putting to death the deeds of the body, he's saying that it is such a radical confrontation with evil that the only thing that makes any sense is to use the imagery of killing it. We are to kill the flesh and its remnants within us. In conscious dependence upon the power of God, through His indwelling Spirit, we're to take whatever action is necessary in order to resist temptation and to kill sin. Whatever is necessary. You remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30 in the Sermon on the Mount? He says that if your eye causes you to sin, you're to do what? To gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, you are to chop it off. It's the same kind of violent imagery. He's saying that this struggle is so serious because its end result is death or life that there is no action that you will not take in order to be successful in the conflict. Putting to death the deeds of the body. He says, you will live. Beloved, this is a necessity. A necessity, but it's a necessity in which we're not on our own to fight it. We have the indwelling power of God within us. Look again, all through this section, the Spirit in you, the Spirit dwells in you, the Spirit of God is in you, your resurrection is assured by the Spirit of God within you, and your success in this struggle is assured by the life-giving power of the Spirit of God who lies within your heart. We're to rely on the Spirit, verse 13, and putting to death the deeds of the body. Let me take a few minutes and share with you some ways that have helped me over the years to, to try to make this practical in my own life. Let me just begin by telling you that I am involved in a great life and death struggle. A struggle in which I have victory some days and some days I don't. A struggle in which I fall down and skin my knee, as it were. But then I get back up again by the Spirit's enablement and I fight the fight again. And I've been at this fight for 30 years. And I'm not the same man I was 30 years ago. I've won a few times along the way. Not by my own strength, but by the strength of the indwelling power and Spirit of God within me. So let me share with you a, just a few ways that have helped me in my struggle. And maybe one of these will help you too. Because you're all involved in the same struggle. So hopefully you've got room somewhere to jot these down. The first thing that has helped me in my struggle is to feed on the Word of God. To feed upon the Word of God. To feed, as it were, on the Spirit's Word. 2 Peter 1.21, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is the Word of God. It is the Spirit's Word to me, to you. So how do you feed on the Word of God? You saturate your mind and your heart with it. You saturate yourself with the Scriptures. And you do so over such a lengthy period of time and with such quantity coming in that you begin to think and speak in biblical terms and categories. Until your mind has begun to be shaped by the very Word of God. And so when you, when you look at a situation, when you look at reality, you begin to see it the way God sees it. You begin to think about it the way God thinks about it. You begin to speak about it the way God speaks about it. Your whole vocabulary changes over time and it begins to be expressed. Your thoughts begin to be expressed in biblical terms. Saturate your mind. Regularly, repeatedly, I read the book of Proverbs. I have found over the years that the book of Proverbs has helped me to gain a perspective on reality and to see it the way God sees it. 
I seek to argue myself back to reality by preaching the gospel to myself. I preach to myself the gospel of Jesus Christ on a regular basis and have done so for many years. I read through the Bible yearly. Every single year. Genesis to Revelation. And I do so that I might gain familiarity with God's character and God's purpose. So that I might come to know the will of God as He has revealed it in His Word. So I feed on His Word. That has helped me in my struggle through the years. Secondly, is I seek not to resist the Spirit's influence in my life to abstain from evil and to do good. 1 Thess 5.19 Do not quench the Spirit. I seek not to quench the Spirit. And again, please understand, I do not walk with any measure of perfection in this. But I seek not to quench the Spirit. I try not to resist Him when He is influencing me towards good and to abstain from evil. I have tried to develop a pattern and a habit of repentance in my life. That is, when the Spirit convicts me of sin, I seek to try to repent as quickly as I can. If I know that I am wrong, I try not to wait to acknowledge my wrong. I try to practice seeking forgiveness from others without delay. I seek to establish a pattern of serving others instead of myself. When the Spirit prompts me towards good, I seek to obey quickly. When the Spirit prompts me away from evil, I seek to obey quickly. Third, develop a pattern of fleeing temptation. Fleeing temptation. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. I try to avoid places, persons, and situations where sin lurks and seeks to slay me. One practical way I try to do that, gentlemen, is I stay out of the ladies' cosmetic and lingerie departments at the, at the uh, stores. It's as simple as that. I won't go in. I stay away from places, I stay away from people, and I stay away from situations in which sin is lurking and seeking to kill me. My son William and, and friend Aaron Miller, son of the Millers here from this church, left for Marine Corps boot camp five weeks ago. And one of the last pieces of advice that I gave to those two young men, I said, you know, when you get through boot camp and you get your permanent duty station somewhere, some fort, you'll be somewhere, you can absolutely guarantee that right outside the gate, there will be all kinds of tattoo parlors and porn shops and brothels and all kinds of things, bars. You can just guarantee it. They will spring up there. And I said, gentlemen, what you need to do is when if you have any kind of leave or liberty and you are leaving the post, is you need to put your head down and you need to start running from the moment you leave the gate. And you need to keep running until you are long clear of the danger zone. Get a cab if you can. If you can't afford a cab, run. If you're too weak to run, don't leave the post. <laughs> Stay there. But avoid places, people, situations in which sin seeks to kill you. Fourth, pray for the Spirit's strength and then act. Don't wait. I try to, I pray for the Spirit's strength and then I try to act on it. I don't wait. There's something that I need to do, then I try to do it, not put it off. I've been in love with this short verse and a half in Nehemiah for years. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 and the beginning of verse 5. You remember the scene, Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king and, and he's got a sad face. And the king says, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? How come your face is so sad? And Nehemiah says, uh, and the king says, and what's your request? And so Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king. And he gave him his request. And I really like that. That's something I want to model in my own life. I pray to the Lord of heaven and I do what I need to do. If I need to speak, speak. If I need to do something, do it. 
Finally, I seek to cultivate an attitude of gratitude in my heart. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I seek to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. I look, try to find God's blessings in every circumstance and situation and thank Him. I don't do this all the time. But when I do, it enables me to slay the flesh, the deeds of the body, to walk in the Spirit. And what I've found is over time that the things that used to trip me up don't trip me up as much. I'm actually growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ and I should be expected to because according to Romans 8.29, that's what I've been predestined to do and so have you, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You know, folks, what Paul's calling us to here is not all that different. Not all that different from what Joshua called the people of Israel to 3,500 years ago. God had amazingly brought them into the promised land and delivered them from all their enemies. And there at the end of Joshua, chapter 24, Joshua's near the end of his life and, and he can see the clouds of unbelief are gathering on the horizon. And so he, he brings the whole nation together before him and he speaks these words to them. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which are beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I challenge you this morning. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you a spirit person? Or are you a flesh person? What characterizes your life? Choose for yourself. Choose for yourself. The decision is life and death. Choose well. Choose well. If you're here this morning and the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart, you know that your life is characterized by the deeds of the flesh. That is, that you're living for yourself. And God has convicted you of your sin. He has placed within you right now, you can feel it inside you. You know the reality of what I'm talking about. That you're lost. That you are on your way to the lake of fire. And you know it. God makes for you a way of escape. Deliverance. If you will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if by faith you will believe that His death, burial, and resurrection was for you personally, not in some general sense in which you say, oh yes, I believe He was the Son of God. Oh yes, I believe He died on a cross for our sins. Oh yes, I believe He rose from the dead. Not in this general way, but in a very personal way. By which you're willing to say that He died for my sin. He died the death that I deserve to die. That He took the wrath of God that is rightfully due me. And that He rose again, proving that He died not for His own sin, but for mine. And you will call out to Him to be merciful to you, to save you. By faith, you embrace that truth. The Bible says you will be saved. You will go in an instant, in the blink of an eye, from a flesh person to a spirit person. From one who is hostile towards God and unable to please Him to one who is now a friend of God, beloved of Him, whose body is, yes, still dying, but whose spirit is very much alive and who is absolutely assured 
of a bodily resurrection and an eternity spent in fellowship with your Creator. If that is your desire this morning, then we want to talk to you. Right here, where you are now, as this last song is sung, I want you to pray and call out to God to save you. And then I want you to tell somebody about it. Don't walk out of here. I want you to tell somebody about it. We'll have folks over here by this lighted cross. You can come and speak to them. They would love to open the Scriptures with you and explain any of the questions you might have. Or, or if not, maybe it's someone who you're sitting right next to. You just turn to them and you say that I, I just asked Christ to save me. Let us rejoice with you and what God has done. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, it is only by Your gracious gift that any of us can be spirit people. We are by nature children of wrath, alienated from You, hostile to You, flesh people, every single one of us. Yet in Your mercy and Your grace, You have reached out to us and opened our eyes to the truth. You have saved us. You have called us into fellowship with You. You have placed Your Holy Spirit within us. The life of God Himself dwells now within us and we are in fellowship with You. Our Father, we pray that You would extend that same mercy and grace this morning to someone here among us. Someone upon whom Your Spirit is moving even now to to call them to repentance and faith. We pray as well, our Father, that You would renew within us a steadfastness to fight the fight, to make sure that our lives reflect the reality spiritually of who we really are, to mortify the deeds of the body, to, to kill the temptations and seek to walk in holiness, that our lives, our, our deeds, our thoughts, our words would not be a contradiction to who we really are. Please work in us, Father. Continue to work in us. Mature us. Grow us. Conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Not for our glory, but for Yours. Amen.